Welcome to a Beer Vana Podcast, Podcast Extra. The following is the full interview between Jeff and Dan Canary, the co-founder and CEO of Harpoon Brewery in Boston, Massachusetts. Enjoy. Okay, so... So I don't sound terrible. Uh, we're here with Dan Canary. 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 Yeah. All right. Uh, who is the founder of Harpoon Brewing in Boston, Massachusetts, 1986? Yep. 1986. Long time ago. Yeah. So tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the background of the brewery and how you got in, uh, how you started. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, started it with two friends, Rich Doyle and George Ligetti. Rich and I were college classmates and George and Rich were in business school together and we were all frustrated beer drinkers. So everybody has different stories. There are a lot of home brewers, a lot of, you know, uh, folks that came out of other production breweries, but we were frustrated consumers. We'd been fortunate enough to backpack around Europe after graduation in the early 80s and discovered a ton of great beers we didn't even know, ex- styles we had no idea existed because the U.S. coast to coast was light yellow lagers. You tell people this now, and they have no idea what you're talking about. And you're like, no, no, really, you could go coast to coast and you would have no choice outside of light yellow lagers, either light light or light yellow lagers, right? You could change tap handles, you could ne- couldn't tell what it was. And even the old regionals, Olympia, in your neck of the woods, you know, Old Sound, Chicago, Stroh, they were all light yellow lagers. So we went to Europe, we were like kids in a candy store, like, oh my gosh. Stouts, porters, real ales in the UK, sours, you know, you dunkles, hepatitis, we just couldn't believe it. So, like a number of folks coming back at the time, you came back to the U.S. and like, wow, this just really stinks that we have no choice. And there just was no excitement. Beer was a commodity. It was something brewed in factories out on the interstate, you know, versus there where there were beer gardens, um, beer halls. It was alive. It was fun. There's a sense of excitement and discovery about it. So we just started to look into what it would take to open something in Boston. We were absolutely inspired by what had just started up in the Pacific Northwest. Seattle and Portland were where we kind of looked to for, I remember thinking like, okay, they have similar kind of shitty weather to us. So there's, it's a, it's a pub culture, right? which it's, you know, back then you could, you built your brands on premise that you couldn't get into stores. They're like, they didn't understand what we were trying to do. So yeah, we looked Seattle and Portland. It's like blazing trails for what was happening. I remember going out there my first craft brewers conference in September of 86 in Portland, about 120 of us in a hotel basement. Wow. And uh, looking and walking around and saying, is this for real? Can this, this feels real, you know? And coffee was getting going at that time and ice cream. So you're trying to say, wow, American consumer tastes changing from that relentless consolidation, getting bigger, more mass market to something more akin to a focus on local, fresh, flavorful. So, we went and raised money, and we opened a brewery here in the waterfront in Boston. So the three of you, did you have any room No, our first big decision, other than how much money to raise, was to hire a brewer. So okay. we hired a guy named Russ Heisner, who was an 86 graduate of the UCAL Davis Fermentation Sciences Program. Wow. Back then, they graduated 25 a year, 20 would go into winemaking, 5 would go into brewing, AB would hire three, Miller one, and Coors one. And then we hired Russ, who'd never been east of Reno in his life, and... Uh, Flew him out here to Boston and wow, to start brewing for us. Yeah, in August of '86. That's impressive. I mean, most of the, the early breweries, uh, I mean, basically all of them started out with unprofessional mm-hmm. brewers. So home brewers trying to figure out how to how to go grow. And again, part of that was again we were not home brewers. We knew how much help we needed to make great beer. We knew the taste and flavors that we wanted. 
where we didn't know how to make it, so we needed to hire someone who did. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the first beers you brewed, and we're going to get to our IPA in a minute, but uh, when you first started, um, I assume that you had no idea what people in Boston wanted. People in Boston didn't know what they wanted, so what kind of beers did you Well, want? I'll tell you, back then, we, you know, this is, it's New England, right? It's largely an Irish and English tradition here in, in the in New England area. So not the, the Germans were here, then left. So, and one of the hottest products back then was Bass. Okay. okay. And one of my early experiences in falling in love with different beer styles in Europe had been in Ireland with Smittix, mm -hmm. which back then was independent still. Right. And I went to the brewery in Kilkenny because I discovered we discovered this beer. I'm like, oh my God, this is so fun. Never heard of this different style. And the brewery, we were the only ones on the tour. They gave us a phenomenal tour. Took us to the basement, the tasting rooms, drinking. Then they drove us to the train station. You know, the typical Irish story. <laughs> Always, so I loved that beer and the people. And then Guinness, uh, excuse me, um, Bass was really strong here. So we had done our research and kind of figured out what Bass was and how it was made and how it was transported and everything else. And we said, you know what, beer is a perishable product, which no consumers knew at that time in the U.S. They thought import meant good, that skunky flavor. We could make a much better mild English-style ale. So that's kind of what we were thinking about. And Harpoon Ale was our first product. Okay. And um, another funny story from back then is it's a, very, it's a delicious, very mild. It's on tap in the beer hall. And uh, for one, one of our first interviews was on the Globe, a little blurb where our brewer, Russ, is the first and last time we ever let him talk to the press. <laughs> he was interviewed to say, hey, can you describe Harpoon Ale? And he said, well, there's hints of apples and bananas. And today you'd think like, okay, that's so cool. Back then, people were like, "What? In God, what are you making? You make the, you guys make the banana beer? That's great. A why do I want apples and bananas in my beer?" So that was Russ. No, I mean, you know, he he went too far at that time because folks had no idea what we were trying to do with beer. So Harpenel was our first. Then Winter Warmer, uh -huh. which has been our, our winter seasonal since 1988. Okay, one of the apps. It was the first seasonal in this market, other than Winterfest by Coors and Anchor Christmas. Uh -huh. um, and then Oktoberfest in 89, and then we did something called Harpoon Golden Lager wow. in late 89-90. So. All right, so 93, Three. we come to IPA. So just to set this up, uh, the West Coast is pretty famous for its IPAs and uh, early use of hops. Mm -hmm. um, hops grow in the Northwest, so we were especially interested in there. Yep. But, the, in, and some... There were a few brew pubs that were making IPAs, but in 1993, I've actually looked into this. There's uh, some early books where people catalog all the beers in the United yeah. States. There was basically no IPAs. It was an extremely rare style. Um, the first really important IPA that came to Oregon was in 96, Bridgeports. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So how on earth did you... But you guys were making a lot of hop-forward pale ales at the time in the Northwest, you know, whether it was in pubs or wherever, that we, were, we really, really enjoyed. Yeah, well, and, and the ingredients. Yeah, and we were. How did, how, how did this beer come? About? Well, we we love the we love the story, the IPA. We've always, you know, one of the things we I have a history major in college. We love his, We love the history of beer. It's one of the great things about our industry. You can, these stories go way back, and this is like a so many things are made up. Right. The IPA story is a legit story, right? And so. We loved the cast, Cascade Hops and loved what you guys were doing in the Northwest. Again, more Northwest inspiration. Our UFO really was a Northwest inspiration as well. And um, we thought, you know, there's nothing like this in the market here. This kind of hop forward at the time, very hop forward. You should have seen the reaction we got to this thing. It's like, wow, whoa, this is so bitter. This aroma. They did, people did not know what it was. Yeah. 
So it was our summer seasonal in 93, and then we, in 94, brought it back, and people said, you've got to make this year-round. Okay. And so it became year-round, and it was, became probably by 96 or 7 outselling Harpoon Ale, and has been our flagship ever since. Yeah, the first time, uh, I, so for the, the folks who are not in this room, I'm gesturing to my wife, Sally. Uh, the first time <laughs> I came out to Boston uh, to meet the family was 96, I think. And I don't know if it was that trip or, or maybe, and then we've been visiting, you know, most, most years since then. But pretty early on, when we would visit her brothers, they would open the, the beer fridge. Her older brother, Tom, always had a beer fridge. Uh, and I remember one time he opened it, and it was all Harpoon IPA. Like, there was a I whole shelf. I love your brother, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and I started to get the sense that it was the, the city beer of Boston, at, even that early on. Mm-hmm. Um, Coming from another part of the country, I would have assumed that it's Boston Lager. You know, that's yeah, yeah. Facing outward, that's the thing. But here in Boston, it seems like it became the beer pretty early on. Is that? I tell you, we had a fifteen-year run where if you ordered an IPA, you just ordered all an IPA in Boston, and it would just be Harpoon IPA. Yeah. So yeah, we had we had a run with it, and again, we just loved the style, and then people kind of took off from the style and created all other bunch of other great IPA styles that took it in different directions, which is all wonderful as well. But for a lot of us, it's kind of become our benchmark beer, if you will, of what, what we kind of define a great beer as, which is for us, it's not necessarily one ingredient shouting loudest over the other ingredients. There's a subtlety and a real art to brewing that we think this beer does a great job of highlighting the balance between the malt and the hops and the blend and the yeast. You kind of can, as you sip and drink, you can pick up all of those different things. And so an IPA for us is a, it's a bigger beer than a pale ale. The hop's bigger, the aroma's bigger, but the malt backbone still comes through. So it's, um, I'm still as much in love with this beer as I was 24 years ago. It seems like uh, Harpoon has a real uh, kind of uh, fidelity to the English lineage still. Is that, is that? You know, I don't know whether it was almost by default or personal taste. You know, we do our UFO. Our UFO White is our second okay. largest selling beer, and that's kind of a Belgian white style. Um, and our Heffy, more of a, an American interpretation, again, inspired by some of the Northwest stuff uh-huh. of a German. I, I, I like American Heffies much more than I like German Heffies. I'm not a bubblegum guy with my Heffy okay. bison, so I like a cleaned up Heffy like we get more in the, in the States. And, um, we do, I, I guess, October. Fa- I mean, we've done. I don't like to think that we're tied to any one in particular. We're more open. If we like a style, we're going to make try to make it. Mm-hmm. We do. Col- we've done a Kolsch for years. You know, Oktoberfest, etc. So, but Harpoon Ale was our first beer, and that was absolutely kind of a pale ale, like English mild style of beer. And so, I think there's a decent amount of that influence here. You're right. Yeah, we'll come back around. I want to talk about. That looks in the modern era, but um, let's talk a little bit about distribution because the business end is uh, always an important feature in every beer store, not yeah. one that everybody talks about. And the la- you you guys were in Portland last uh, fall, and you mentioned briefly that you're self-distributed at mm-hmm. least around here. I guess you have, mm-hmm. once you got big enough, you're, you have distributors outside the, the state. But talk about self-distribution. Uh, you started. We're, yeah, we're fortunate in Massachusetts that you can self-distribute. So. And that's a very important item to us and all these franchise law, other beer reg, you know, issues. Self-distribution, we think, is an essential right for a brewer. I don't think anyone should be able to tell us how we can get our beer to market. But 
in the Boston metro area, so inside of 128, for those of you familiar with Boston, we just distribute ourselves. In the, outside of there, we have about 100 wholesalers, so from okay. Maine to Texas. Okay. And we started out self-distributing, Rich and I delivering in the truck, and then we brought somebody on to do our bottled product, and we introduced bottles a little later. Then they took everything, then we took it all back, then we sold it from 97 to 02, and then we bought it back in 02, and we've had it ever since. So we've, so we've kind of seen different sides of it. And I think I remember when we tried to when we bought it back from the wholesaler. We were friendly. We knew them personally and got along well with them. And just saying, you know, to us, Boston's our crown jewel. We're still over twenty percent of our business is the Boston metro area. You know, so for us, it's like it can't be an afterthought on a wholesaler truck. And we found when we went to a wholesaler, we really had the exact same number of salespeople as when we did it ourselves because it just wasn't getting the attention we wanted it to get. So. Mm-hmm. Um, we view it as kind of now as a crucial, you know, strategic advantage that we have. And in our hometown, kind of having deep roots, and I think it's going to be, it is really important, and it's going to become more and more important over the next several years as the market continues to shake out. It's sort of like having a separate business. You have to, yeah. have, you have, to have trucks. Uh, I visited a distributor recently for a project I'm doing in Portland, and um, now that there is so much complexity in the market, both the number of beers that you're making, the number of places you can sell to, the logistics are a real nightmare. So, uh, yeah. is it? Yeah. Has there ever <laughs> been any question of like, does this make sense? I think a lot of brewers of yeah. your size. Well, you know, it's interesting. Sense. You know, the old saying about lobster or the frog, I guess, and you put it in the cold water and turn the heat up gradually versus you drop it in. I remember when the in the nineties, we were doing, I think it was over three hundred thousand CEs a year delivering without a loading dock. It's just kind of the business grew and it grew and it kind of like, and you kind of figure it out one way or another. And then it just kind of all of a sudden got to the point, it's like, we can't do this anymore. But then when we got it back, we kind of put the infrastructure in place because you're absolutely right. The and, and we're a very, very small wholesaler. But you go into any wholesaler today and you realize the back of the house is really running the operations now because if they don't do a good job with SKU management, it could sink their business. Yeah. It, it's really a challenge. And then the other side of this is, uh, you know, I talk to other brewers who work with wholesalers, and once you once the beer leaves the brewery, then it's in other people's hands. So there's that side of it too. Yeah. Here yeah. in Boston, uh, you know, retailers are another matter, but you you're, you're delivering beer to retailers in the shape you want it to be. In. Absolutely, we take care of it. There there are days where IPA you're drinking that night in a bar could have been racked that morning, which is pretty cool. Yeah. It doesn't have that sitting in a warehouse for a week or two. And our guys are our drivers and our shotguns, and they're, they're an absolute advantage for us because they're part of our culture, they're part of our team, they're representatives of our, and we hear this all the time from accounts, that they're, our, we're their preferred vendor just because, and more the back of their house, because our, our drivers are so courteous and helpful and mm-hmm. go that extra mile. They're not you know, just kind of going through the process. Shotgun? What's that mean? Helper. Okay. The helper and the and the truck. You have okay, two. Right, two. Right. I'm sorry. I should have explained that. That's okay. But okay. it's okay. another reason why, like this whole franchise law reform thing. Um, yeah, this is a dicey thing. But it's here, a dicey thing. Here it's in a, Massachusetts, will you talk a little bit about like you, you mentioned uh, before we turned on the mic that uh, a local brewer here, uh, Dan Paquette, is that how you say yeah. his name? Um, Ex-brewers, actually out of the business now. That's yeah. right, right before... Threw a bomb the and then left the business, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we were all together that night, by the way. Oh, you were? Steve Hindy, Jim Cook, 
Rob Martin, Dan Paquette, and myself, we were at dinner and then upstairs in this and having an event in the beer hall. Did you know he was going to drop the bomb? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no one did. No one did. So he drops the bomb and, and yeah. says that the, the Boston's a pretty, uh, got some pretty dirty practices, some pay-to-play, which is uh, some wholesalers paying retailers to carry the product. Um, what's it like to do business in Boston? How's, I mean, does that, does you that know, reflect your experience? We've grown up in the system in Boston the way that it is. Do I, you know... We've gone to other cities, New York, Philly, Chicago. Is Boston unusual compared to those markets? Not at all. Um, In some ways, Boston's not as outrageous, perhaps, as some of those other markets. But, you know, you just figure out what the rules are in each of your markets, and you try to compete effectively. I think the whole pay-to-play thing, are there some excesses that go on? I'm sure there are, over-the-top stuff. Um, But... Sometimes I think people can hide behind other problems that they're having and blame it on pay-to-play. I mean, the idea that one of the beauties of our system is still a relationship business. And we built our brand because of relationships we built with individual bar and restaurant owners. And the fact that our beer did well or reasonably well or enough to have us get in or stay in. That's right. It's a strong brand. And so, and if we've been shut out of accounts because these bigger wholesalers or bigger breweries do things that, yep, we have. We've, we've taken that on the chin a bunch over the years, hmm. but um, we would like to see a level playing field where we just all understand the rules, you know, and we operate in a bunch of different states, we have another brewery in Vermont, and I'll tell you, nothing goes on in Vermont. Okay. Nothing goes on in Vermont. The, the rules are very, very clear, and they're uniformly and consistently enforced. So Vermont is one of these city, one of these states that's leading the nation in, in terms of craft brewing. Yep. Is there a relationship there, or is that just a coincidence? I think it's just a coincidence. I think it's just a coincidence. New Hampshire's the same way, and it's just that you operate differently. And again, the big brewers operate differently. Their wholesalers and local businesses, they operate differently. In Massachusetts, for years, it really was quite clear that the priorities were pay your taxes, don't serve underage people, and don't serve people who've been overserved. Right. And beyond that, we're going to kind of let you run your business because there's nothing, you know, that's significant that can go on. And I, I don't necessarily argue with that. Mm-hmm. But the laws are kind of nebulous. And so it was just an interesting approach to me. We, we as I said, we really support a very open, transparent, easily understood, consistently you know, enforced set of rules and regulations. And we'll, we feel we'll compete effectively at that. And do you have proposals or ideas? Or are you working with people who have a regulatory... Uh, idea in mind about how to enforce these rules? There's a big thing going on right now. Yeah, there's a, so it's it's all part of this pay-to-play thing and other issues out there, but this this treasurer has convened a task force to do a complete review of all Massachusetts alcohol rules and reps. And so they just, they formed this task force and now they formed these committees to look into specific issues under this task force. Mm -hmm. And they're about five committees, I think, and I think we have two or three people on various committees. Those committees have just been formed. The first meeting of one was last week, I know, and Charlie Story, our president's on one. And it's made up of industry experts, supply brewers, wineries, wholesalers, um, regulatory folks, and so they're to come up from, you know, bottom up, like, recommendations on, hey, how can we update these rules and regs? Yeah, this is, I think, uh, as the market becomes tighter and Probably something that 
don't pay as close right. attention to. But now things are getting a little tighter, and I think probably this is a level playing field. It's probably something people are interested it's, in. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the spec, you get into this inside game of politics, and it really, there's some fantastic people in that process, and I'm not a broad brush guy. Because that's typically inaccurate, right? Mm -hmm. There's some great people doing great work. And the Mass ADCC, there's some awesome people there. They go, I remember when we did our ESOP, became 48% employee-owned, and trying to go up and explain that to them. They're like, because they want to know who your shareholders are. And then we're trying to explain, like, all of our employees, and it's going to change. And, you know, the person could have been a small-minded bureaucrat and made our lives very difficult. I said, you know what? That's great what you're trying to do. I, I get it. We'll work with you on it. So we've had... We've had way more positive experiences than negative, but um, you do see the special interest side of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in, it's unattractive. I mean, it's no surprise who some of the, the among the top three largest money donors in the state legislature are in Massachusetts. They're in our industry, but they're not on the supplier tier. Yeah, right. And so you go up and you try to talk about reform or whatever, and all of a sudden you kind of run into this wall of stuff just disappears and calls stop being returned and. Yeah. You see that side of it, and it's it can be a little bit uh, demoralizing. And this is one thing that people, I, I, and I need to do more reporting on the, the wholesaling side, because uh, I think it's a, such an important part of the, the story of craft beer, uh, and one that's completely unknown. Um, but for years and years and years, the most powerful man in the Oregon legislature was Paul Romaine, and he represented the wholesalers uh, organization yeah. in Oregon. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you have competing interests. You know, you have different kinds of. It's it's not. We overlap on so much. Yeah. And, and I'm I, I'm glad we wouldn't be here today without the support we've gotten from wholesalers mm -hmm. and retailers. I mean, it's I think brewers get way too much of the credit for the success of craft beer. We've right. got to give a shout out to these partners, that, and especially some of those early wholesalers. We were turned down by the big guys in Boston. We were turned down by a lot of wholesalers, but right. the guys like at Merrimack Valley, Atlas Distributing, who said yes to us when no one would. We wouldn't be here without them. Right. And we, we have so many important issues that we've got to stand shoulder to shoulder. We're having our lunch cleaned by craft spirits and wine, mm -hmm. you know. But I would love to see a reasonable franchise law reform model rolled out cross-country so we could kind of just put that issue to bed. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. no justification for it. I get that they're losing something significant. They have a basically a... They have a nice gig going, you know, when they wrote these laws in the 70s and 60s and 70s when there were just a handful of big brewers. and Right. But, you know, now it's a little bit greedy and it's a little bit much. And so I'd love to see some kind of reform that could, we could live with so we could put that issue away and we could get on to just trying to build, build beer sales. Right. All right. Uh, not to harp on distribution, but the last uh, question I have, which is the kind of the financial side. So... One of the cool things about distributing your own beer is you're not giving that tranche of income away to the, the margin. The, yep. The, the yep. distributor. On the other hand, you got to maintain trucks and drivers yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah. So, uh, how does that work out? Is I mean, well, we don't do it in Vermont. We wouldn't want to do it in Vermont. Okay. But it works in Boston. Now we we is couldn't that, do is that it because really, it's a tight yeah, area. Yeah. Think yeah. about it. you know we have a nice we have a nice setup here to run this our distribution business. We're on the seaport downtown. We're going against traffic. We're centrally located. And this area 30 years ago used to be parking lots and nothing, right? And so we can operate an efficient distribution business. Uh -huh. It's, but, you know, it's it's tough. It's a tough business. And, and this labor market is very tough. Oh, yeah. Boston is booming. Okay. 
And so people can't afford to live close, and then they're dealing with our commutes, and so it's staffing is tough. But it does. You got to start with. Do you have the? Do you have enough accounts in a geographic area to deliver to efficiently? Mm -hmm. And if you don't, then you should have somebody else who can do it more efficiently do it. Yeah. Um, and there's that fine line because we probably could have someone actually do the delivering piece of it more efficiently than we do. Maybe, maybe, as I said, we're pretty good our location, etc. But the sales side, the account servicing, the attention, all that stuff is not even close. Right. You know. Right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, how things in beer have changed. 1986 to I mean, probably 1986 to maybe like 2006. I bet it looked. Fairly, like, your growth was similar, the market was similar, you were building your flagship, that was a great thing. And you knew everybody in the business. Yeah. You really did. You go to conferences and you kind of, you'd see the same people, and it grew it like, by, whatever, 10 or 20 or 30 a year, and you kind of, it was a very different world. But then things really changed. Yeah. Things have really changed now. Yeah. They've changed on both sides. For, for breweries like you, you've got uh, really stiff competition from uh, larger breweries, uh, now with, yeah. with uh, particularly with, with larger breweries acquiring craft breweries, they can brew these on plants that are very efficient, mm -hmm. plug them into distributor networks, it's mm -hmm. very efficient. You got pressure on that side, and then you got pressure on the other side. Completely. Uh, here in Boston, I, I just actually did a blog post today about how um, when you look at the top 36 uh, craft beers rated on uh, Beer Advocate, they're from two breweries. So the beer geeks are just crazy, crazy, crazy for Treehouse and Trillium. Right. And uh, so you're, you know, you've got all these guys who are, and I, I, I don't know those breweries so well, but in, in, in often uh, little breweries like that don't even really make very many of the same beers. It's just a churn. So it's like constantly they're making them in tiny batches, and people are just buying them in these tiny right. batches. And they're getting right. this attention. So as a, you know, Treehouse is obviously not taking very much volume away from Harpoon, but when you add up the 100 breweries in Massachusetts, then you got you got it from both sides. Uh, and then this whole idea of supporting the flagship becomes a different approach, yeah. you know, because yeah. uh, I wrote a... And our flagship happens to be in the hottest category in <laughs> beer, which has gone from about 70 IPAs six years ago to 1,500 today. Right? Yeah. It becomes a very interesting challenge. I mean, if, you're fat, if fat tires your flagship... Or Sharon Nevada Pale Ale is your flagship, or it's Boston Lager, it's only, but ours is IPA. And you can say, well, IPA's been growing like crazy. Yeah, they absolutely have, but the growth is all the new, 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 other than Lagunitas and a couple of others, right? So, yeah. oh, it absolutely is a challenge. I, I, it, the, you look across the numbers for the regionals like ourselves, and people are under real, you know, we're, we're some cases where your dad, if we don't stay fresh and new, we're your dad's beer, which is not a good place to be. Right. And um, on the other hand, you're making tens of thousands. I don't know how many how many barrels of, of Harpoon IPA you, you make, but you have a giant. I mean, is it wildly by by the measure of barrels, wildly popular beer? So you right. want to support the people who like this beer? Absolutely, absolutely, and it's so important to remember that. I think in our industry. We spend a lot of time talking to each other. We're a lot, of, a lot of great people in the business, so it's easy to do. And you spend a lot of time following the great beer, beer advocate, etc. Like, what's hot? What's the newest thing? And that's all well and good. But it's very important to step back on occasion and see, okay, and even, let's not even talk about Harpoon IPA for a second. Let's step even further back and realize that, wow, 80% of the market is still light yellow lagers from Corona, Heineken, through Bud, Bud Miller, etc., etc. There's... 
a ton of beer out there that's not Trillium or Treehouse or Alchemist or whatever. And it's awesome what they're doing, what we're doing. But, you know, the goal is what we were talking about earlier, which is two-thirds of the draft beer in Portland is craft beer. I mean, I'd like to see... I'd like to see two-thirds of all the beer in the U.S. be craft beer. I think the corona numbers are something in the craft industry we should be talking about. Why are people in the U.S. paying to have a beer shipped hundreds or thousands of miles from Mexico on trucks? You know, it's not to pick on corona, but we have a story as craft brewers that we can tell to go after big, big segments of the market that are not yet being serviced or not yet being satisfied by what we're offering. I'd rather focus on that more than trying to be something who we're not. And, you know, you are a Harpoon IPA. I mean, that is a big, big part of your identity. And everybody looks at the last quarter's numbers. So we're we're looking at these numbers. Um, I I tend to think about beer in a little bit longer time frame. And um, when I look at beer, uh, it looks like brands that have established themselves in a local home market have a loyal following, uh, are identified with the local area, tend to weather these kinds of storms a little bit. Um, and Boston is an interesting market. So I, I, <laughs> I talk about how Harpoon fits in the Boston market. Boston is one of the most traditional cities in the world. I mean, you guys do not change. You know, Fenway Park, like <laughs> the traditions there, that thing about the Sweet Caroline thing, mm-hmm. never going to get rid of that. Like that started and now it's there, <laughs> it's there forever. I mean, you know, Bostonians are traditionalists. Yeah. They, they like what they like. And so it's a little bit different than in some other markets where things sh- shift and people are looking to change over. Um, what's it like selling a beer here in Boston? And are you hoping that, you know, are you are you hoping that Ar- Harpoon IPA continues to be the brand? And is that something you're trying to support? Absolutely. And identify with Absolutely. Boston? Yeah, we believe we're really bullish long term on Harpoon IPA. I mean, is it going to undergoing, you know, Lots of challenges now from a lot of new IPAs, absolutely, no question. I think we, we're we still more than 70% of our sales in New England. Mm-hmm. If it was 30% New England, I'd be a lot more worried than I am at 70%. I love how deep we've been in our New England market. You know, We bought Catamount 17 years ago to really build another anchor in northern New England. Right. We have a half million people visit our two breweries a year. I mean, we run festivals. The stuff we do, the Harpoon helps is to go a mile deep in our marketplace to kind of make ourselves part of the community. And I think that, knock on wood, we've, we've achieved a great deal in 30 years. We have a lot more to do. Boston is a place that embraces tradition. It embr- it's, it's an intensely personal place. Mm-hmm. You know, who are you? Who's your father? Who's your mother? Well, you know, the <laughs> um, And... That stuff kind of matters here, maybe more than it does. I know it matters every place. I, I don't think we're quite as trendy as some other parts of the country. We kind of don't get caught up in some other stuff as quickly. We kind of get things maybe a little bit later at times. Or, or we adopt things and kind of do them in our own way here in New England. Um, I think there's an intense pride that comes. You know, people, New Englanders tend to love New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and are, are other than like parts of February and March... In April and May. I'm pretty happy being here. Um, so we're really, we are of the region, proudly in the fabric of the region, and we embrace it fully. You know, it's not, we've always been, one of the reasons, you know, when we were battling in early days against Jim Cook, mm-hmm. 
and we, we were his Boston Beer Company of Brewing and Beer in Pittsburgh. Right. He hated us, you know, but we were proudly saying, hey, we're the only, we have Mass Brewing License 001, we're the, we're the real deal. Right. Um, so. And it seems like that's really, the, I mean, I'm basing this on a, a skewed sample of my in-laws, but it, it does seem. <laughs> I like your in-laws. Everything I've heard so far, I like a lot. <laughs> it does seem like, and they really related to Harpoon as the local, the local beer, and that's what I, I mean, I've seen, you know, Boston beers available all over the country, so of course you see Boston yeah. beer around here. But um, uh, it does seem like it's pretty well identified with the city, and I, I assume that that's an important place to be. You want to, like, if you can be identified with Boston, that's a. Well, you know, a lot of people come through here, whether they go to school or just tourists visiting, mm-hmm. and um, our location. Mm-hmm. This was one of the best decisions we ever made, and it, it cost yeah. us a lot. And when did you move here? We moved here in March of '87. Okay. It took so us. It cost us six months at a time when we were burning through our founding capital. It was a tough thing. From September of '86, we identified this then, and we had a competing space available down in Hyde Park, in an industrial park, which is Hyde Park's a part of Boston, but tucked way down in the southwest, tough to get to. And and we said, no, you know what? Part of what we want to do from our vision, from our traveling, when we go to Europe and the Bruges, would be right in the center of town is we want it to be visible. The only space in our brewery here that's been used for the same, purpo- same purpose since we opened is our what we call the tasting room now, which was our tour room. Mm-hmm. But when we opened up on the other side, that we had our offices and we had a tour room and bathrooms, that was it. And that still uses the tasting room today. I mean, because tours were, getting people down here was crucial. And have you been, were you here 30 years ago or ever in this neck of the woods or 20 years ago or? I'm sure I strafed it. It really was a, there was a warehouse, warehouses and parking lots, Whitey Bulger like killed people down here. I mean, it was just a <laughs> lousy area, right? This is the old naval, South Boston Naval Annex. So yeah, people thought we were crazy coming out here. And now the whole city has moved this way where we have thousands of condos, apartments, thousands of hotel rooms, I mean, office buildings right here. And yeah. so it's turned out to be for us an incredible decision. No, we don't own. It's city-owned land, but we have a 50-year lease that we did in 2008, which was kind of a nice time to do, wow, it's do leases. Land. Yeah. Huh. Because it was a naval annex to the Charleston Navy Yard, mm-hmm. and the feds closed it, turned it to the state, turned it over to the state, and the city turned it, state turned it to the city, and they turned it into this marine industrial park for water-dependent uses. We said we're 95% water. Right. <laughs> um, but it's fish processing, a bunch uh-huh. of people around here. Cool. Like Reebok's moving the headquarters right over here in the design center. Sam Adams is right over there. All right. Um, but we've loved it. But as you can imagine, as the cities come down here, we've added, we went from 5,000 square feet to 47,000 square feet. Beer hall. Mm-hmm. We've done everything we can to encourage more and more people to come down. Because that's really who we are. We're about the sociability of beer. We're not about, again, starting back, we weren't home brewers, right? Mm-hmm. We were frustrated beer drinkers. Mm-hmm. We've never been about this, hey, come to my mom's basement for this beer that I just made. You know, the two of us drinking this beer, we've been about what you're going to see upstairs, which are long communal tables where people just come and gather and have beer and warm pretzels with friends and love beer, love life. That's kind of who we are. And the 48% employee ownership that we did three years ago, that's kind of just part of it. I had a guy at the gym this weekend who's just going to know me a little bit say, you know, that harpoon thing that you guys did, that employee ownership, I mean, that's just really cool because every week someone's selling out. Yeah. That's someone selling out, and you guys aren't doing that. So, 
That is that felt we, good. We had an employee-owned company in, in Oregon that, that sold the private equity. So yeah, it's full of, sale. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so once the once you once they're owners, they can do whatever they, they want. They can do so. whatever they want. As New Belgium's finding, you know, yeah, yeah. you're right. So. You're absolutely right. And uh, I remember calling Irene, who I've known for years. Yeah. Ask about ESOPs back when we were thinking about it. This is, and she was like, you know, they were kind of forced to do it because oh, yeah. they were going to lose their company, and they went ESOP. And so yeah. she's. She was like, yeah, we did it, but it was not done like the reason, like kind of like we, we ran to do it, you know? And um, so, so in some ways it didn't surprise me the way that turned out for them. Yeah. But um, I've always liked and admired those guys. That was yeah. part of our tour last year. We went to Full Sail. Jamie and I are, are rock solid people and they've done an amazing thing. As yeah. Well. And, and in fact, they were real pioneers too. You know? So many of the brewers that have founded second generation, third generation brewers have come through full sale. I could, I could name like a half dozen that have pretty well regarded breweries. Interesting. Right now. Many of them uh, in Hood River. And in fact, uh, Hood River, which is Matt Swihart's brewery, you can literally throw a stone and hit full sale from, from uh, Double Mountain. And they have a good relationship. And so then we went to, was it P. Fram or how do you pronounce that? Freem. Freem. We went to Freem when we were there too, I know, in Hood River. That's kind of a hot, or there was a hot brewery a year ago. Josh works at Full Sail. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, they're they're really good people. Mm -hmm. The last question, I will not ask you to predict what the future of beer is, uh, because that's a mugs game. But I'll ask you, where would you like to see Harpoon in say twenty five years? Uh, what what's like an ideal situation for Harpoon? I would like Harpoon to be a you know a nationally recognized leading regional craft brewer in the Northeast, 100% employee owned, known for making incredible beer, fun sociability, and just being deeply woven into the fabric of New England. What size do you think you'll have to be to do that? You know, I'll say this, and I'm not trying to be cute, I don't necessarily know size matters so much okay. in that regard. You know, we're roughly a 200,000 barrel brewery now, which I think gives us some, a real platform to do a lot. 200, almost 200 employees. I don't know how much bigger we'd have to get to be more relevant, you know. Um, and the exciting thing for me is going to be to watch the next generation of leaders here at Harpoon figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Not your Not anytime soon, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. I think that's uh, all I have. And uh, Good. we'll figure out how to put this on the podcast. So thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. I always enjoy talking with you. We hope you enjoyed that podcast extra. As always, a few words about how to get in touch. If you want to read more about Harpoon, go to Jeff's blog, Beervana blog, at beervanablog.com. Please send us email to jeff at beervanablog.com or you can check in with the Beervana blog Facebook page. Cheers.